right, good morning. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18, it is on page 179 in our Bibles. It's towards the beginning of your Bibles. If you hit Genesis, you've gone too far left. So we've been walking through this series together, and I want to remind you, the the author of Hebrews in chapter 6 says that the promises of God are an anchor for your souls. When the storms come in your life, you need an anchor to hold on to. Often God, I think, uses the trials in our lives as a way to reveal what's truly in our hearts. When you find yourself overwhelmed, when you find yourself worried, angry at God, or simply wanting to just walk away and give up, often what that means is that you've started to put your hope and your security in something that is other than God. You've tried to anchor your soul onto something that's going to perish in this world. And so when you do that, when you try to anchor your hope in something of this world, it's kind of like trying to anchor, put an anchor on an ice cube in the middle of a, of a desert. It may hold for a minute, but eventually the heat is going to melt that ice and you're going to lose what you're anchored to. And my hope is that as we walk through this sermon series called The Promise Keeper, that God would use it to really develop a, a deeper trust in his faithfulness so that we'll have something to, to latch our anchor onto that won't, when, the, when the storms of life come, we'll be able to withstand it. So in week one, just as a quick review, in week one, we talked about the initial promise of Christ, and we traced that all the way from Genesis chapter 3 all the way to Christ, and we saw that Christ was the plan from the very, very beginning that the, the promise was that there would be an offspring of Eve that would one day crush Satan. Promised way back in Genesis 3, fulfilled in Christ. Last week, we took a look at another promise. God promised Abram that one day his offspring would be a blessing to all the nations. And we looked at the life of Abram and how God over and over showed his faithfulness to Abraham through adversity and through covenant, over and over, God proved his faithfulness to the point where Abraham responded, I think, in one of the most remarkable expressions of faith that we find in all of the Bible when God tests him. God forged that faith in him through all of his life experiences and proved his faithfulness to him. And so this week we're going to take a look at another prophecy in the Old Testament that points to Christ. This is the prophecy that declares that the Messiah would be a prophet like Moses. We're going to look at one of the greatest figures in all of the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, and we're going to see that Moses is really a foretaste of Christ. There's a ton of similarities. And once again, my hope is that as we connect these dots, you're going to hopefully see that God is faithful to, to fulfill his prophecy, to, to, that his promises can be sure, that we, we, we know that he is the promise keeper. So let's pray that God would help us to see that. Father, 
I know often we forget your promises altogether. Often we've, we, we don't trust in your faithfulness. And so I plead with you right now that your spirit, as we open up your word, would open up our eyes, the eyes of our hearts, that we would trust deep down in your faithfulness, that we would put all of our hope in you, that we would find all of our security in you because we know, we have learned through experience after experience, when we try to put our anchor in anything that this world provides, eventually it's going to give way. We need a place to put our anchor that will never give way. We need Christ. Help us trust in you for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Deuteronomy chapter 18. The context of Deuteronomy 18 is this, that God is preparing the Israelites to go into the promised land. And so he's setting up a bunch of rules and regulations. And in Deuteronomy 18, 10 through 12, God is forbidding the Israelites from what God calls abominable practices of other nations. He's specifically talking about things like child sacrifice, divination, fortune-telling, witchcraft, uh, interpreting omens, sorcery, charms, seances. I, re I remember when I was young, my uncle brought over, my uncle's only like three years older than me, but he, uh, he brought over uh, one of those Ouija boards. Are those still a thing, by the way? Does, they, they still have. And I remember my uncle bringing that over, and we just kind of played around with it, and we thought it was kind of, but it, it was a like a little joke that we just played with. But I can even remember, even before I was a believer, Messing with that and thinking, okay, this is just weird. This is wrong. Well, there's a reason. Because God has called all of those pagan rituals abominations. It's because these, first of all, he was telling the Israelites, look, you need to be different from all the, uh, the rest of the world. Okay, they are looking for secret knowledge in all the wrong places. You see, these pagan practices, they were there to exert power over people and over circumstances. They were really there to manipulate the small g gods that they believed in. That's why they did those seances and the sorcery, the charms, all the, that new age stuff that we still see today, the, the palm reading, the, the fortune telling, all of that have their roots in pagan worship. And they were trying to manipulate the God. And so God says, look, these are abominations. The, all's the, all's they were doing, it's self-serving. It's manipulative. And then ultimately what it does, it leads to, to debased self-worship. You end up worshiping your, yourself when you're doing those things. And so God is warning them of those practices. When you go into the promised land, he's saying, don't be like the other nations. You are to be set aside. You are to be holy. You are to follow me and, and know my will. And so he follows those warnings up with this amazing promise. Look at verse 15. We're in chapter 18, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. And this is Moses talking. So he's saying, look, if you want secret knowledge, if you want to know my will, look, I will raise up for you a prophet. And then he says this, it is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. Okay, what's he referring to here? He's referring back to when the Israelites were at the 
the foot of Mount Sinai, also called Mount Horeb. And they were, Moses was receiving the Ten Commandments, and God spoke audibly to them. I know when I was younger, I, I always wanted to know God's will. And I was like, God, would you just talk to me like you did in the Bible? Would you just talk to me? Give me an audible sign of what I should do and where I should go. Now, as, as I've gotten older, I realize I don't want God to speak to me audibly. <sighs> I will wet myself, okay? <laughs> it is not worth it. And, then, and so this is what happens. They hear the voice of God. They're scared to death of the audible voice of God because it's a holy God speaking to them. And those, so they beg Moses, please don't, don't let God speak to us like that. Let him speak to you and then you speak to us, okay? We need a buffer is what they're saying. And so God says, okay, because he recognizes that a sinful people cannot stand in front of a holy God. And so... He sets aside Moses, and, and when Moses spoke, or when God spoke to Moses, what happened? Moses' face like started shining bright because of the glory of God. He was a, became a reflection of the glory of God to the point where they said, put a veil on so you don't blind us. And so he's recalling that experience when they asked for a prophet. They said, look, we need somebody to speak on God's behalf. And so he says in verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. And next he warns them of false prophets. Verse 20, but the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. You need, in other words, you need not fear him. You need not listen to him. And so just as we read in the New Testament that we're, we're warned over and over in the New Testament to really evaluate and, and test whether somebody is a false teacher or not. Uh, if somebody proclaims that they, they are speaking for God, you ought to evaluate. I, and I would expect you to do the same thing with me. When, I, when I'm preaching God's word, you, you should not just take my word for it. You should go to the, the source, the authority. Is this what God's inspired authors intended in that passage? Make sure that I'm, I'm preaching what's actually there. So the, the question that he wrestles with, or they wrestle with here, and what we should wrestle with, is who is this prophet that he's talking about? Who is this prophet that is going to be like Moses? And of course, we believe that that's Jesus Christ. And there's three lines of reasoning that I think prove that this is truly Jesus. First of all, no other prophet in the Old Testament met the standards set by Moses. There was no other prophet that was, that was raised up that was like Moses. We're going to see a passage that points to that here in a second. Number two... 
when you get to the New Testament, the Jews were still waiting for the fulfillment of this promise. They didn't see that any other prophet fulfilled this. And when they observed Jesus, they interpreted him as the fulfillment of this promise. They looked at Jesus and said, yes, this is the prophet that Moses talked about. And then finally, we're going to take a look at all the similarities that there are between Jesus and Moses. And so number one again, no other prophet in the Old Testament met the standard that was set by Moses. There was no other prophet like Moses. First, um, we look at Deuteronomy chapter 34, verses 10 through 12. This is after Moses dies. We read this. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to, do, and to all his servants and to all of his land. And for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all of Israel. And so, yes, there would be many other prophets that would be raised up, but none of them would do the same miracles. None of them would speak with the same authority on God's behalf, predicting accurately future events God had planned out like Moses did. None of them were like Moses. All of those prophets in the Old Testament were really just shadows of the great prophet that would come in Christ. And so when we see, when we come to the New Testament, the Jews recognize this and they're, they're still looking for the promised prophet. And so when John the Baptist comes on the scene, it's been 400 years since God has really spoken. God's been silent for 400 years. And so John the Baptist comes on the scene speaking with authority, speaking like a prophet. And so what do they start doing? The Jews start asking, who are you? Are you the Messiah? Are you the prophet? And they're speaking of Deuteronomy 18 there, when they asked that to John the Baptist. Many of the first century early Christians, they observed Jesus, and they concluded that he was the prophet who Moses had spoken of. After Jesus fed the 5,000, that group of people collectively said, this indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world. Both Stephen and Peter, when they preached, they preached about Jesus being this guy, the prophet that Moses spoke of. Even Jesus, he told the Jews that were persecuting him, look, the one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you've set your hope. For if you believed in Moses, you would have believed in me, for he wrote of me. So not only do we have the testimony of the New Testament authors, just look at the life of Jesus. I mean, if there was anybody that was similar to Moses, it was Jesus. Uh, there are numerous similarities, and I'm going to list off just 10 of them. I could have listed off twice as many of, that, of, of them, but I wanted to hit at least the highlights. And I didn't come up with all, all of these. Uh, the, in fact, some of the best resources that I found on this subject were Messianic Jews. And so they're Jews, current-day Jews, that have become Christians. They've, they've converted to Christianity. But obviously, they would know a lot about Moses. And so here are, are ten similarities between Jesus and Moses. First of all, of course, they were both Jews. Okay? They, it said in the text that he will be among the brothers of Israel. Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. Uh, number two, both made very bold predictions that came true. Number three, both did miracles to testify to their God-given authority. Uh, number four, both were sent to bring salvation after a 400-year apparent inactivity from God. Okay, you think about that. The, 
where were the Israelites when Moses uh, came to them to, to free them? They had been in Egypt for how long? For 400 years in slavery. And Jesus came onto the scene after uh, 400 years of God being silent. Number five, both were born at a time when there was an evil king that had pronounced death on all Jewish boys in the area. Pharaoh had commanded that all the Hebrew baby boys were to be drowned, if you remember the birth of Moses. And Herod had issued a command to kill all the baby boys under the age of two in that area where Jesus had been born. And both were, of course, miraculously rescued from that threat. Number six, both showed God's people that salvation comes through blood. Okay, so Moses with the Passover lamb's blood on the doorpost. And then, of course, Jesus, the Lamb of God, would sacrifice his own blood on the beams of the cross. Number seven, both gave up great riches to lead a humble life in service and poverty. Moses left the palace and the, the king of Egypt. Jesus left heaven. Both were noted for great humility. Number eight, both were willing to sacrifice their own lives for the sake of those that they were leading, even to pay for the sins of their people. Moses offered his life in Exodus chapter 32. Jesus, of course, showed that he was ready to offer his life in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he said, not, not my will, but your will be done. Uh, both, like I mentioned before, both of their faces shone with the glory of heaven. Okay, I talked about Moses already. They asked him to wear a veil after he had spoken with God because his face was beaming. Well, at the transfiguration, Jesus' face showed like lightning, it says. It was so bright. And finally, number 10, both led God's people out of slavery. Jesus, of course, leads us out of slavery to sin. Uh, and, and where did he lead us to? Where did, where did Moses lead the people to? Well, it was to the promised land, but where did they have to go through to get to the promised land? They had to go through the wilderness. When God saves us, he doesn't save us and we immediately go to heaven, do we? We don't immediately go to our promised land. We walk through the wilderness of living on a a planet that sin still is very active in our lives. Yet in both, sin, both, both instances, while the Israelites were walking through the wilderness, who led them and protected them and guided them? God was there. And still today, if you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit guiding you. God is with you. His presence is available. Now, there's a number of other similarities that we could talk about, but I think you get the idea. There, there's no doubt that Jesus is one is the one who fulfills this prophecy. He is the promised prophet like unto Moses. Now, the promise was that God would raise up a prophet like Moses. And that word like is important because let's not forget that Jesus is still far greater than Moses. Hebrews chapter 3 declares that Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. And so Jesus is not just merely a prophet, like Islam would proclaim. Jesus is much more than a prophet. Moses was a servant of God. Jesus was, is the Son of God. Moses was still just a sinful man in need of salvation himself. Moses never even made it in the promised land. Jesus right now stands the right hand of God interceding for us. So Moses was a trustworthy prophet. Jesus Christ is infinitely more trustworthy. 
I think it's significant that at the end of Moses' life, he gathers the Israelites together, and this is kind of his final words that you can find in Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 9. This is, again, uh, right before they're going into the promised land. And he reminds them of the faithfulness of God, that God is a promise keeper. He says, and and we read this as our call to worship, he says to the people, he says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all the people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. That the Lord has brought you out of a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the, house, the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, knowing therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenants and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. I love how he says that. The Lord your God is God. In other words, this is just who he is. He's, he is faithful to keep his promises. Even when you're faithless, it's not like you can hide your sin from God. And God says, look, I have placed my love on you, not because of anything that you've done, not, not because you're special, but simply just because I love you and I chose you. That's a promise worth hanging on. That's a promise that we can anchor our souls to. He is still a promise keeper. So the weeks leading up to Christmas, we typically celebrate Advent, right? We, uh, we light candles and we anticipate Christmas. In a moment, we're going to sing, O Come, O come, Emmanuel, to ransom captive Israel. And when we, when we light these candles and when we sing that song, yes, we're reminded of Christ's first coming. And we should celebrate that because it's a reminder of the faithfulness of Christ. But we're also reminded that Christ, has, as a prophet, has also made a promise to return. And so when we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, pay attention to the words because he's not just talking about the first coming. I believe that song is also a reminder of Christ's second coming. And I understand that after 2,000 years, that is a, a promise that is often difficult for us to believe in, that Christ is, is going to come back. But it's a promise that I think that we need to be talking about more often. As a church, it's easy to to forget about it. In fact, I I read an article recently that 100 years ago, they used to sing about the coming of Christ a lot more than we do today in church. And I think that's what we're supposed to do. I think that's what we see in Scripture. Uh, In 2 Peter 3, 9, Peter says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, 
some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so we should not worry that it's been 2,000 years. God's timing is not our timing. Peter encourages us to, that he says that we should be a people that are waiting for and hastening the coming day of the Lord. In fact, John ends the book of Revelation, the last words of the Bible. He says this, he who testifies to these things, talking about Jesus, says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. That's the last words of the Bible. Come, Lord Jesus. We should be saying that often to one another. We're challenged in Scripture to encourage one another of that. And I, I want to take just a minute to think about, okay, what happens when a church fails to do that? What happens when a church fails to anticipate that promise? Remembers that Jesus is a prophet, the great prophet, like Moses, that told all of us that he's coming back. When we as a church, or you as an individual, stop thinking about that and stop anticipating that, what would happen to the church? One, I think it totally kills any kind of passion for evangelism. Because if this world is just going to keep going on like it is, why would we pour out our lives for the kingdom? But this is what Jesus says in John 4. Do you not say there is yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. Jesus is saying, look, I am coming soon. You should live as if I'm coming soon. And, uh, and for God, soon, uh, one day is like a thousand years in, in God's mind. And so we ought to live like he's coming back today. What do you want God to catch you doing when he returns in all of his glory? You're in a good place right now. <laughs> but where will you be tomorrow and the next day? And the next day. This is why it's so important for us to be reminded over and over. And you never know. When you share the gospel with somebody, you may not see the, the fruit right away. But man, we should be passionate about sharing the gospel because we don't know what tomorrow is going to hold. Uh, just last week, we had a, a visitor, and they're actually, I think they're planning on coming to the, the Christmas party. They had to work last night, so they're sleeping right now. But it was a, it was a, a guy that I met at Kroger a year and a half ago. And he saw that I had a Michigan cap on, and so we got in a conversation, because he's an Ohio State fan. God bless him. <laughs> so we got in a conversation, and I invited him to, to Mercy Hill. It took him a year and a half, but he came. So you never know. Share the gospel. Invite people to come to, to Christmas Eve. Like I said last week, people will come to Christmas Eve service that will not come throughout the rest of the year. This is an opportunity. We've got invites. Scott's going to talk more about that here in a minute. But if we don't think that Christ is coming back, why even bother? We need to be reminded often that that promise is true and we should believe it and anticipate it. Come, Lord Jesus. Secondly, if we don't anticipate Christ's return, you know what? Your best life is now. And that heresy is true. I mean, if Christ is not coming back, we might as well make Christianity into a set of just healthy, rational principles for feeling good about yourself, staying in shape, balancing your checkbook, and doing good deeds. 
Because, I mean, if Christ is not coming back, really comfort is what we ought to be pursuing, not Christ. Comfort is king then. And we ought to look at the, what Christ calls the foolish, rich, young ruler. I mean, he, he knows what's going on. And he, he understands. I mean, eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. If Christ is not coming back. Paul, in his letter to the Thessalonians, after instructing them about Christ's return and our own resurrection when that happens, he concludes by saying this. He says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. We ought to encourage one another by talking freely about his return often. We, we should sing about it often. We should sing about his return. We should pray for his return together. We should be praying that prayer often that, Lord, come soon, come back. On all of our lips, regularly, we should hear the Apostle John's word, Amen, come Lord Jesus. I'm convinced the more we talk about Christ's return, the more we are going to, the more we encourage one another with that, the more we sing about it, the more we pray about it, the more we're going to trust in that promise. And the bolder it's going to make us to proclaim that promise. Jesus, the promised prophet, like unto Moses, has made a bold and hope-filled prediction that one day he will return and make everything right. That is not something we should shy away from. Otherwise, we water down Christianity into just a bunch of feel-good things to try to make your life a little bit more comfortable. And that's not what we're about. That's not what the Bible is about. And so this Advent season, let's, yes, look back to the past and remember God's faithfulness, but let's, let's also look forward to the promise of the great prophet Jesus, the Messiah. And let's believe that when Christ comes back, we're going to see him in all of his glory as he, and, and he is a promise keeper. We're going to see, this is what we're going to see in Revelation. We read that he will be clothed with a long robe, with a golden girdle, girdle around his breast, his head and his hair were White as white wool, white as snow, his eyes like flame of fire, his feet were like burnished bronze, refined as in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars from the mouth, issued a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. Let me close with, Paul's words to Timothy. This is towards the end of Paul's life. He says to, them, to him, he says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do you love and long for his appearing. Do you look forward to Christ's appearing like a bride longing for her groom? Is that something that you think about? I think it's something that we need to be reminded of often. We need to remind one another. Let's pray for his return, and let's pray that God would cause us to remember and believe in that promise. Father,
Again, we confess that often we fail to remember what you've promised us, that there'll be a day that you come in all your glory. And so we go about our lives focused on trivial things, setting our hope on things of this world, looking for comfort in false saviors. And while we may not play with a Ouija board or do sorcery, we seek our salvation in other areas than you. And so we confess that to you now, and I pray that your spirit would strengthen our faith in you, that we would trust in your promises, and they would be an anchor for our soul. Embolden us to proclaim the promises that you have given us. In Jesus' name, amen.